This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. On Tuesday, a NATO official said, I think a solution for Ukraine could be to give up territory to Russia, he meant, and get NATO membership in return. Today, Wednesday, that official said he made a mistake. Stian Jensen is the NATO official that made that statement. He's the chief of staff to NATO's secretary general. In fairness, he said it was a part of a package of possibilities. But he seemed to misjudge the optics of such a statement. And Kurt Volker, former special envoy to Ukraine from the U.S., says he doesn't really understand Ukrainians. What the Ukrainians care about is protecting their people, their country, winning the war, getting getting a peace that they can live with. And Volker, who was also the U.S. ambassador to NATO, said joining NATO is a lofty goal. But NATO membership is not a goal in itself. NATO membership is a way to achieve security in the long run. We'll have Volker's view of this situation, and General Ben Hodges will talk to us about what's happening on the ground and what needs to happen in order for Ukraine to win. Coming up on this episode, from WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. America has a target on its back, and on this program, We investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. When I first saw the story where a NATO official said Ukraine could give up territory and get membership in NATO give up territory to Russia and get membership in NATO, it was troubling because it seemed to suggest a quid pro quo with essentially Ukraine doing that just to get into NATO. But my understanding of NATO was always that NATO was a part of a process of securing your future against aggression from Russia, not the be all that ends all. Later, this official just said, okay, I made a mistake. Uh, I didn't mean this. It was just a part of a discussion I was having. But at that point, the genie was out of the bottle. So we have with us discussing this today, Kurt Volker. Kurt is a former U.S. special envoy to Ukraine, and he's also a former U.S. NATO ambassador. 24 hours ago, the chief of staff for NATO's secretary general made a comment suggesting Ukraine give away some of its territory in order to become a member of NATO. And the way it was phrased did not suggest give away this territory to win the war, but to become a member of NATO. And needless to say, it didn't go over well in Ukraine and with a lot of other people, and I'm assuming you're one of those folks. Today, Mm -hmm. he's come back and said, I made a mistake. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, it was a huge mistake and a very insensitive comment. Uh, For Ukrainians, the the first thing is that when you talk about territory, it's not only land, it's people who live on the land. 
and they are behind occupied lines. Um, and the Russians commit horrific war crimes against the local population. Um, they've executed civilians. Um, they have kidnapped children, take them, taken them back to Russia to try to indoctrinate them to think that Ukrainians are bad and that Russians are that they are actually Russians. Uh, it is a horrific set of things that the Russians do in areas that they occupy. So suggesting to Ukraine that they should just write that off, um, that um, that's very insensitive and really doesn't show an understanding of the plight that they face. And then secondly, uh, what the Ukrainians care about is protecting their people, their country, winning the war, getting getting a peace that they can live with. And NATO membership is not a goal in itself. NATO membership is a way to achieve security in the long run. But if it's only security for half your people, that, that's not security. And to be giving away territory in a, in, in a way that recognizes that Russia can have them, not even contesting it, um, purely unacceptable for the Ukrainians. Yeah. And, you know, it also, as, as you mentioned before, doing something like that, you know, it sets the stage for future conflicts and it prolongs the war. I mean, my whole thought about this comment when I heard it was, what is driving this comment? And someone mentioned to me today that this is a comment that may be rooted in Western hand-wringing about what winning this war means, what yeah. what happens if Ukraine wins, uh, and and how because you never hear them talk about winning, you hear them talking about not losing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So yeah, a couple thoughts on that, and I think you put your finger on a very important point. Um, giving Russia Ukrainian territory and, and accepting that, agreeing on that, will not end the war. It will set up the next war. Uh, it will cause Putin to consolidate these gains. It'll give him a longer lease on power, and he will attack again. Uh, so it is not a way of actually buying peace and security. Um, and then uh, to to the point that you're, you're making... Um, what, what happens if Ukraine wins or how, you know, how does Ukraine... Yeah. Win. Yes, there's there's two aspects to that. There there is the, the first one is the sense that we can't do this forever. We can't arm and fund and help Ukraine forever. Our domestic politics won't sustain it. So the Ukrainians have to start looking for a way to end this. So it's a it's a way of thinking that rather than it's our interest, it's uh, we have a national security interest in Ukraine winning this war, defeating Russia, defeating aggression, and creating the conditions for peace in Europe again, uh, they instead think, oh, we can't do this forever. They're going to have to settle for something. And then the, the second part of it uh, is indeed, oh, what if Ukraine does win? What if, it, what if they are just about to throw the Russians out of Crimea or something? Um, won't that escalate? Won't the Russians attack somewhere else? Won't they possibly resort to nuclear weapons? And so they worry about that as well. Uh, I think that is also a dubious line of thought. Uh, I don't think that if there was anything out there that Putin could do to escalate, he would have already done it. Uh, he, is, he doesn't want to open a new front uh, with Poland or the Baltic states or the United States. He doesn't want to attack US warships in the Black Sea. Uh, that's the last thing he wants to do is to expand this conflict. 
And when it comes to nuclear weapons, I think he realizes that there would be a direct response against the forces using nuclear weapons and against the invasion forces in Ukraine, uh, because no one can afford to live in a world where nuclear weapons are used as a routine matter of war. Uh, so he knows that that will not go his way either. So I think the chances of him escalating in those ways are actually very low, and they shouldn't be deterring Western leaders the way that they are. Um, Ambassador, the thought that you have and the way in which you've laid this out is very clear. It's very crystal and, you know, easy to see and easy to understand. The thing that a lot of people are missing is why aren't the diplomats or why aren't the leaders of various countries and, you know, stakeholders, why aren't they thinking and saying this this way? What is it that we don't know that is their great fear? And I, I don't know that there is one. It could just be that they're still stuck in that old idea that we can't upset Vladimir Putin. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I do think that's a big part of it. There is a, a hangover of dealing with the Soviet Union and thinking that, oh, they're big, they're powerful, they're, they're always going to be there. We're going to have to learn to live with them. Uh, we, we can't humiliate Putin. We can't humiliate Russia. That is certainly a part of thinking among Western leaders that has is, is caused a real hangover. Interestingly, some of the newer leaders in Europe have gotten over that faster than some here in the United States. Uh, for instance, the, the Italian prime minister, Maloney, she's been very forthright in saying that it is in Europe's interest for Ukraine to succeed. Uh, and uh, Macron has increasingly been going in that direction as well. But you don't get that from some other European leaders. I think a second dynamic is also fear about domestic politics. Everybody has a far right in their uh, domestic politics somewhere, and they're worried about that far right saying, oh, you're going to get us into a war. Uh, we don't uh, want you to do that and using it to uh, have political gain for those forces in those countries. And I think, frankly, I think that is uh, it's misreading our publics. Our publics understand the difference between right and wrong here. They understand what our own interests are. And uh, our leaders should indeed actually be leading. So I guess finally here, um, the United States is has given a lot to Ukraine, has has has, has put a lot into this war and has a great deal at stake. Um, not just because of all that it's given and all that it's put in, all that it's invested in this, but also because of its word. We're going to be there with Ukraine until this is done. I can't imagine the U.S. saying it's okay to just give away territory. And if they did think that, or if they did do that, then what's wrong with them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, you have not heard anyone from the administration suggesting that um, they've been very clear saying it's up to Ukraine. That's their country. And the Ukrainians have to be the ones to make decisions about their future. But you were also right when you said they don't talk about Ukraine winning. They don't talk about helping Ukraine have a victory. They just say as long as it takes without being clear what that is. And we are holding back on some types of assistance deliberately, such as a TACM uh, long range artillery shells, uh, slow pace of getting the F-16s there, slow pace of getting the M1A1 Abrams there, um, not enough uh, presence and support in the Black Sea. 
So we are holding back on some things as well. And I think that idea has to change. We have to really come out talking about our interests uh, in a Ukrainian victory. And we have to think about this very broadly. First off, um, if we are concerned about China and China's interests in acquiring Taiwan and absorbing Taiwan into the rest of China, um, they will be encouraged if we cut and run in Ukraine. Uh, they will see that we don't have the will to actually stick to our word and to actually guarantee security of a country. Um, and that would encourage them. Conversely, what they are seeing so far is that Russia has dramatically weakened itself by attacking Ukraine. And that's a cautionary tale for China. So if we're looking at this in a big geostrategic picture, it's very important that Ukraine win. You hear that from the Taiwanese directly. They say directly, that's their most important need right now is for Ukraine to win because that will protect them against China. And then we also face an issue where Putin uh, has launched this uh, war of aggression, this desire to reestablish a Russian empire has been very explicit about it. And we can't afford to live uh, in a transatlantic community where that is what we are faced with every day. That's going to be a threat to Poland. It's going to be a threat to the Baltic states, to Finland. Um, we have to see that the idea of imperialism in Europe and the idea of aggression and getting away with it is defeated. Brilliant. Ambassador Kurt Volker, thank you very much for laying it out, telling it like it is, and doing it in a very concise and understandable way. Anything you want to yeah. add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I do want to add something on this, too. I, I've seen some of the polling data. The Reagan Library did some polling data about American attitudes toward the war here. And, you know, something like 75% of Americans believe that it is important for Ukraine to win the war. And that's Republicans and Democrats. And they some say, well, it's costing us too much. So on the one hand, yes, Ukraine should win, but it's not worth what we've paid. But then when you start giving them the data, like we've spent 3% of one year's defense budget on helping arm Ukraine. We spent 3% of one year's defense budget on helping arm Ukraine. And that has weakened the Russian military dramatically and helped them defend freedom. When the people see what the cost actually is, um, it's gotten a lot more support, still almost two thirds of the American people supporting that. So there is a reservoir of support in the country, which if our leaders reached out for it and explained the stakes and defended the cause here, I think you'd see Americans rallying behind Ukrainian victory. That's Ambassador Kurt Volker, former U.S. Ambassador to NATO and former U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, that is what it is. We, we know what we know about that statement, and it was misguided. And we also know, too, that it probably wasn't an accident. It probably was something a bunch of people were thinking about, but Jensen from NATO was the one that decided to float it. 
So what does that say about the U.S., its commitment to Ukraine, and about Ukraine's chances to win this war? Ironically, about a week ago, I had a conversation with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He's also uh, a NATO mentor on logistics, and we discussed this very mentality. Um, JJ, I, th I think a lot of us <clears throat> that watched Europe closely and watched Russia in particular uh, realized after Russia's invasion of Georgia back in 2008 that this was uh, a Russian government that was willing to use force uh, in Europe against its neighbors. Uh, and then the fact that we in the West did nothing of significance in response to that uh, worried me that this would invite further aggression uh, by Russia. And then, of course, that continued uh, with Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine in 2014. And again, we, the West, U.S., Canada, and Europe, really did nothing of consequence. You, know, you, you will remember that the height of the strategic debate was whether or not to provide javelin. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of where we were. And so the Russians were pretty confident that we would not do anything uh, back February last year when they launched their special military operation. So based on what you see right now, um, clearly there's been some changes in thinking in the West, but is it was it enough? Is it in time? Because we see what's taking place. We've seen Ukraine make some gains. We, we, we've seen Russia basically just not be able to do much, if anything, right in this war. But still, the West has dragged its feet on a few things. But I'm wondering, where does this war stand in terms of Ukraine's, the possibility of Ukraine winning it? So it, it absolutely is possible, and I would even say probable, that Ukraine can win. Uh, the, the biggest obstacle, though, is us, the United States. Um, the Either the unwillingness or inability of the administration to declare uh, what our desired strategic outcome for this war is. They should say, of course, that we want Ukraine to win, that it's in the interest of the United States and all of our European allies, uh, indeed globally, uh, uh, that Ukraine wins, defeats Russia. But the administration's unwillingness or inability to actually say that um, it contributes to this incremental decision-making that we've been watching now for the past 18 months and an unwillingness to provide certain capabilities that would, in fact, turn the tide in favor of Ukraine. And I'm talking about long-range precision capabilities that could, for example, make Crimea untenable. The Black Sea Fleet would have to leave if Ukraine had the ability to hit Sevastopol regularly with long-range precision strike capability. That would, I mean, that's the decisive terrain of this war is, is Crimea. And I just think the administration uh, is is either unable or unwilling to do that right now. Why do you think that is? I mean, I know unable and is, is one thing. You, you, you may not have an answer to that, but do you have an answer for why you think they're unwilling? So the, the first responsibility of our polit political leadership, our civilian leaders, is to describe the outcome that they want. And then the military, the State Department, everybody else then comes up with a plan. Okay, this is how we do it. These are the requirements. These are the risks. Uh, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan, and we only had a clearly defined outcome the first year. The next 19 years, we spent 
without a clearly defined outcome. So this transcends multiple administrations um, and then it ended in disaster. So uh, I'm worried that we're in the same place that the administration has not declared our outcome, the one that we want. Instead, they say we're with Ukraine for as long as it takes, which of course is an empty statement. That, that means nothing. Um, why is that? Uh, of course, you know, I'm an old retired guy. I have zero responsibility uh, other than for myself and my wife, and I have uh, no resources or authority to give. The president literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. So I don't, I don't mean to be too cavalier or dismissive of the uh, the risks that he has to consider and the priorities he has to uh, accept or determine. Uh, but I do think that the administration is overly concerned about the possibility of Russia using a nuclear weapon. Every time the president says no World War III, of course, nobody wants a World War III. But what he's saying is we're not going to do anything where Russia might feel that they can or have to use a nuclear weapon. I think the Russians are extremely unlikely to use a nuclear weapon. And even if they did use a tactical nuclear weapon, this is not something like Hiroshima or, or the final scene on Dr. Strangelove. Ukrainians have said, hey, if, they use a, if the Russians used a nuclear weapon on us and they would be the most likely target, that's not going to stop us. But the Russians see that we, the West, um, are deterring ourselves out of this fear that they might use a nuclear weapon. And, and I think this is misguided policy. I also think that they're concerned. <clears throat> they don't know what happens if if Ukraine wins and what, what happens in Russia. And that's a, that's a healthy concern. What does ha what does happen? Does Is Putin gone or does he just change the narrative? And, and so I think there is concern about uh, catastrophic victory by Ukraine. So that's a really interesting point that you bring up. What happens if Ukraine wins? I'll get to that a little bit more in just a moment. But first, I want to ask you, give me your assessment of how you think Ukraine is doing right now, especially considering the conditions in the south and the east right now. I know landmines are a huge issue right now. But there are other yeah. issues as well, not just there, but in the war in general. But give me your sense of how you think they're doing right now. So, uh, of course, um, all of us would like to see, um, or at least everybody that supports Ukraine would like to see uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive um, going faster and, and with less casualties. That's obvious. Um, having said that, uh, I have to give the Russians credit. They did not waste <clears throat> the several months that we gave them while we were arguing about whether or not to provide tanks and whether or not to provide more long-range weapons and, and all of this. You know, they were busy dig digging trenches and, and putting in minefields. And so even though um, their Navy and Air Force and Army are operating independently of each other. There is no joint operational commander for Russian forces. They've got terrible problems of their own. Nonetheless, they do have mass, and uh, and the and the Ukrainians are having to to deal with that. So, uh, you know, the the way that you neutralize the advantage of mass is by going after artillery and headquarters. That's the only advantage the Russians have is mass. So uh, by destroying Russian artillery and the ammunition stockpiles for that artillery, it, it takes a lot of pressure off of the Ukrainian troops who are trying to breach these minefields. Because when you're stopped at a minefield and you're trying to clear it, 
that's when you're most vulnerable to incoming artillery. So you Ukrainians have to be able to go after Russian artillery and Russian logistics. And for that, they need more longer range capabilities. And the other thing they want to do, of course, is to go after headquarters um, because of this centralized command and control system used by the Russians. If you can destroy headquarters, it reduces significantly the effectiveness of the Russian units that are in those defenses. Um, that that's how you that's how you neutralize it. But it takes time and it takes long range capabilities. Um, Ukrainians are the best of any army of any country I've ever seen at adaptation of, of integrating new technology, but also adapting to what's happening in front of them. And uh, I think they, they realized early on that they were going to have to change the tactics that they wanted to use in order to create openings in these defenses. So given what you see, given what we've all witnessed from February 24th up to this day, and also looking at what we've seen from Russia, which is the unwillingness to to stop this war, um, what do you think it would take then for Ukraine to achieve decisive victory? I mean, you've talked about the, the Sevastopol piece of this, and you've talked as well about the military, the headquarters and the artillery, et cetera. But then there are other pieces of it that's kind of spread out. You know, you see what took place, these exercises with China, where they decided, okay, let's go over to Alaska and, 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 and harass the U.S. How do you put this military in a position where they can't do any of that? So uh, when you look at a map, you realize quickly that Crimea is the decisive terrain of this war. I mean, the Russians, they don't they don't really care about Luhansk and Donetsk, except that that gives them uh, land access to the Crimean Peninsula. It's the land bridge. Uh, you know, the other connector to Crimea, of course, is the Kerch Bridge, which we already can all see how vulnerable it is. So the Russians need this sort of land bridge that runs from Rostov through Mariupol, Melitopol, down into Crimea. Um, if and when Ukraine is able to liberate Crimea, Russia loses this unsinkable aircraft carrier that it has now for launching attacks all along Ukraine's southern coast and into the interior. Uh, it loses the ability to disrupt or block all five of Ukraine's major seaports, uh, Mariupol and Berdansk, even after they are liberated, will still be unusable because Russia blocks access in the Sea of Azov with its control of Crimea. And then the other three ports, Odessa, Mykolaiv, and Kherson, um, are either blocked or disrupted by Russian forces operating from Crimea. So the, the Ukrainians know that they'll never be safe or secure as long as Russia occupies Crimea. And they'll never be able to rebuild their economy because their five main ports needed for export of grain uh, and other materials are blocked or controlled by the Russians. And so they have to figure out how to liberate Crimea. And I think they do this, number one, by isolating it with land forces, but also by striking the bridges that connect Crimea to the land and then making it untenable. 
if they have a weapon that can go 300 kilometers, the Black Sea Fleet has to leave. It, it can't sit there in Sevastopol. It would have to reposition about 400 kilometers to the east to Novorossiysk. And, and Novorossiysk is much less capable of being a home base for the Black Sea Fleet than is Sevastopol. So this is this is the approach. Once they've done that, you know, the hundreds of miles of Russian trenches become much less uh, important. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, a deeply moving story about the wildfires in Maui. Fueled by heavy winds, the fire got out of control because helicopter suppression units were not able to fly. It was it was jumping all over. And so uh, you had some firefighters that were trying to contain on one side of the road. And before they knew it, there was a fire behind them. Kiani Rollins Fernandez is a member of the Maui County Council. And, and they, you know, tried to escape. We, we lost three fire trucks. Um, in the fire because it just spread so quickly. And then there was the human loss. Individuals uh, who weren't able to to get out uh, driving, um, they had to run and, and jump into the ocean because um, the fire just came so quickly. And Fighting back tears, Rollins Fernandez says it was a horrific situation. You have individuals who, who weren't able to get out and because of smoke inhalation may have may have collapsed um, and didn't make it out. Um, you have individuals who did jump into the ocean that suffered severe burns all over their body. Um, the, the water, the ocean was on, on fire because of all the fuel in the harbor. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.